Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called Onward, a study in the book of Acts. Together, we're learning how to live as an ordinary people, empowered to continue Jesus' mission. Thanks for listening. Uh, I want to invite you to open your Bibles like we do every Sunday. Uh, I want to invite you to act like you are here and to engage the same way you would normally give yourself. And uh, I have always learned that the more I give myself, the more I get out of something. So again, thanks in advance for just having that kind of heart. Uh, as you can imagine, there's only a few people here that have been serving on the praise team and a couple other staff and people praying, but I'm glad you're here. And I know we've had some technical difficulties, but again, we're recording this, and so we hope you'll be able to see this at some point in our church family. So I want to invite you to take out your Bibles and open to Acts 6. And we're going to pick up from where Steve left off last week. We're going to look at verses 8 all the way through chapter 6, all the way through chapter 7, and into the beginning of chapter 8. Now, that's 71 verses. I'm not going to cover all 71 verses. I bet you're relieved about that. But here's the question question that I want to try and answer today as we look at the life of Stephen. How do we move onward when God permits suffering and loss? How do we move onward when God permits suffering and loss? Up to this point, things have been going very well for the church overall. They've had some challenges, but nothing like we find in this next section of scripture. Stephen will become the first martyr. And we're going to look at Stephen's life today. And the reason why we've chosen such a large section of scripture is we did not want to break up about his life and see not only his character, what he said in a sermon in defense when he was accused of falsely, uh, accused falsely, but also we're going to look at his dying words. And then we're going to try and make sense of why did God allow Stephen to be killed this way when he was such a bright and shining light in the church? You know, I was trying to think if we were to lose uh, a certain person in our church that had such a catalyzing effect, how would we respond? Where would we find the strength to move onward? That's really what I want you to think about. And here's why we need this message. As I've read sociologists and I've seen different authors talk about what sociologists are noticing in our culture, they're saying that every culture has always provided their people with a way to face and make sense and understand and deal with suffering. But our culture now has probably become one of the worst cultures ever in equipping and preparing people because we just say there's lots of ways. And so people are left on their own. But what history has shown down through the years is that Jesus Christ and the way he offers us gives hope and prepares us. And we see this happening in the life of Stephen. So would you pray with me as we look at Stephen's life, his character, his sermon, and his dying words. God, thank you so much that we can gather this way. It certainly means an adjustment for us. In a way, we've had kind of a loss of community this week. So how do we move onward? How do we adapt? How do we let you lead us even in this chapter? We look to you, God, and we thank you that you will provide. In your name, amen. Okay, so first of all, I want you to look with me in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6. We see a lot about Stephen's character. And so, again, I invite you to follow along, either using printed out notes or looking at it there on a tablet or screen. But here's the first line. Like Jesus, Stephen is full of grace, power, and the Holy Spirit. 
Like Jesus, Stephen is full of grace, power, and the Holy Spirit. Now, last week when Steve taught us, we saw that the church had to make a decision of how to feed the widows. And so they said, let's do this. Choose seven men who are full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And then when they chose those seven men, the seven that were listed, Stephen was listed. But notice that he's the only one of the seven of which this is said, that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 8, which I invite you to read there on the notes with me out loud, those of you that are here and those of you that are watching. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So do you see that? Stephen is full of grace and power, and as we've already seen, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus was full of grace as well. In fact, John 1:14, I've listed out to the right. I think we can put it up here on the screen for you. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And then a couple verses later, here's what it says in John 1. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has given Stephen, by his Holy Spirit, he's given Stephen grace and power. Have you ever thought about this? When a person is filled with something, what does it mean? It means they're controlled by whatever they're full of. And so he was filled with this grace, just like Jesus, and this power, just like Jesus. And have you ever met someone that's just full of grace? Uh, just to interact with someone like that, it is so winsome. It just draws you. And Stephen was this kind of person. But notice this, if you're following along, that even his accusers note his wisdom and shining face. Even his accusers note his wisdom and shining face. So as we motor along here, let me just read verses 9 through 15 and show you how this plays out, because this is when the trouble begins. Opposition arose, however from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Now, interestingly, this was a synagogue, probably in Jerusalem, that was represented by five different countries that were Greek-speaking, so they were Jewish, but they were Greek-speaking, just like the seven men that were chosen last week. And evidently, when Stephen got to know Jesus, he went to the synagogue and he began to tell them what he was learning from the scripture and they began to argue with him. And interestingly, we're going to see later in this passage that we're looking at today that Saul, who was going to oppose Stephen, was from Cilicia. So there's a good chance that where it all started is Saul and some others in this synagogue did not like what they were hearing from Stephen. So as we go further, notice this. It says... It says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Notice, this wasn't his own wisdom. It was given to him by the Spirit. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
There was something about being in the presence of Stephen. They could tell that he had been in the presence of God. Wow. Now, I want you to notice that, again, he was able to share wisdom here. And then later, when he's asked to defend himself, wisdom that's greater than his own. We've been learning in this series that God wants to use ordinary people like us. The only way that's going to happen is if we let ourselves be full of more than ourselves. And so Stephen did. And so uh, notice this, that Jesus actually promised that this could happen if you ever got in trouble like this. Look at Luke 21. It says this. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you. For I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. And that's what we notice here. They weren't able to stand up to the wisdom. So when you can't do that, what do you do? You smear someone, you misrepresent them, or you try and get rid of them. And that's what's going on here. But I want to just ask you to think about a person's character for a minute. What does it mean to have character like Stephen? If we're going to be ordinary people that God uses, what does it mean? It means that we are going to need to be available, open, humble, leadable. Someone once said that character is like the prongs of a ring in which you might put a valuable diamond. You only can put a larger diamond if the prongs are strong enough. And so God can only entrust responsibility to us as we become open, available, and willing to respond to him. Stephen was this kind of person. And so God is looking, as we saw a couple weeks ago, God's looking for people whose hearts are open like that and who are leadable, no matter how ordinary we might be. If a person, the ordinary that they are, is open, God can fill them with his power, his wisdom, his spirit, his grace. Now, notice this, that once that happens, it leads us to chapter 7. So if you look at chapter 7 with me, notice the first two verses. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this, he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. Now, I love how he starts. He speaks very respectfully, and he invites them to listen to what he's about to say. And what he does next, over the next 50-some verses, is he gives a sermon that is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And again, for time's sake today, I'm going to invite you that if you want to, read it all in its entirety later. But what I want you to notice is I'm going to try and give you an overview and highlight some things in this sermon. Because when I first read it, it just seemed like a lot of words. It seemed like an overview of the Old Testament, which way to go, Stephen, but how is that getting to the real issue? But the more I've read it, the more I realize that he selectively picked places from the Old Testament that they had missed. And as a result, he is answering brilliantly. The Holy Spirit has come through for Stephen. And this message, many of them would never forget. I'll talk more about that later. But notice this, if you're following along, like Jesus, he answers false charges about Moses, the temple, and the law. Like Jesus, Stephen is going to answer these false charges made against him. That was also what the Sanhedrin did to Jesus. Same group that was beating up on Jesus is now beating up on Stephen. But he also had the same things put before him. You know, Jesus said, tear this temple down and I will raise it in three days. But he wasn't talking about the big temple. They thought he was speaking against the temple. Jesus said, I have not come to get rid of the law, but to fulfill it. But they heard him saying he came to change the law. 
And so again, notice that, that, that Stephen is going to answer these charges beautifully. Now, let me uh, ask you to continue going on. Notice that the majority, if you ever read chapter 7, you'll notice that the majority of what he talks about is Moses, and that's because he was accused of speaking against Moses. But he also highlights four different sections here. He highlights Abraham and the original promise God gave to Abraham. Through you, I will bless all nations through you and your offspring. And that promise, and he talks about that, and he talks about how God established that covenant with Abraham, not only through that promise, but also through circumcision. Then he goes to Joseph, one of the patriarchs, and he talks about Joseph. Then he goes to Moses, and finally he talks about David and Solomon. But I want you to notice that one of the brilliant things he does is that he says, I've kind of noticed a pattern. When God raises up someone to rescue our people, we tend to reject or resist them. He talked about Joseph, how Joseph's brothers were jealous of him and actually tried to get rid of him. He talks about Moses and how the people didn't realize that he was the one. Let me read verses 23 and following in chapter 7. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and argued him, avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This is important. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself, though through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. Now notice this next section. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Now what Stephen is doing brilliantly here is he's showing, look, if you're so proud, of your loyalty to Moses. If you're so proud of being part of all of our ancestors, you need to know that we have been fickle, we have been unfaithful, we have resisted God's leadership in our lives for years, all the way back to these ancestors. 
We didn't even recognize that Joseph was sent by God. We didn't recognize Moses was sent by God. We need to be careful when we say that we're loyal to Moses to a fault. And that's what you're accusing me of. But the point is, you need to know that Moses was always pointing beyond himself. I'll come back to that. Now notice, he shows how the temple next is a signpost, not where God lives. So he's been talked, he's been accused of speaking against Moses, against the temple, against the law. And now he says, okay, you've said I'm speaking against the temple as well. So now look at verses 44 through 50, how he picks it up. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. And when they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, God, the most high, does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so he's saying, look, even Solomon, who built this temple, remembered that God could not be contained. In fact, look at 1 Kings 8. Here's what Solomon said when he dedicated the temple. And again, they would remember this. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence to this day. May your eyes be open towards this temple night and day, this place of which you said, my name shall be there so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. So what Stephen does so brilliantly is he says, look, I talked to you about Abraham. I talked to you about Joseph. I talked to you about Moses. I talked to you about David and Solomon and even Joshua. Here's what you need to know. God's been working outside the temple all along. He is not limited He is not one that is speaking against the temple. In fact, here's what one person says. And so Stephen's criticism is not against the temple itself, but against how the religious leaders viewed it. You see, the mistake that they made, and it's a mistake we still make, is that they tried to box God in. In essence, they wanted to contain God and dictate the terms that it is here in the temple and here alone that God may be found. And Stephen knows that God is way bigger than that. And so we even, when the way we teach our kids, we need to teach them, this church building is not God's house. God doesn't live here, but we pray God works here. And we pray that God works outside these walls. And we worship a God who can help us in suffering because we may find our places outside a church building. And we may find ourselves in situations in other countries. But God cares about other countries and he cares about us and he can help us. Notice last in this section, this long sermon, that he shows how they too have resisted the Holy Spirit. How they too have resisted the Holy Spirit. And these words are challenging to read, but I invite you uh, to read them uh, with me. Um, Follow along if you would, excuse me. So here's what it says. You stiff-necked people. Can you picture someone that has their necks tight? God said this actually in Exodus 32 of his own people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. In other words, they're still unresponsive. 
You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Now, I need to just show you something that was tucked in these verses that shows why he's saying that they are resisting the Holy Spirit. I told you that he quoted Moses. And Moses is one of the ones that said something important. So I've listed verse 37 in that second gray box in your notes. Would you read it out loud with me? This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Now, interestingly, I told you that the more I read this this week, the more I was amazed by how brilliant Stephen is. Well, let me just show you an example. He actually is quoting Deuteronomy 18, 15 from the Old Testament. So I got this novel idea uh, yesterday to look that verse up and see what it actually said, to see if it actually said the same thing. And uh, here's what I found. Look at this on the screen if you see it. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. Now look at the last five words. You must listen to him. You must listen to him. And so this idea that, again, he's saying, look, Moses said these things to you, and when he did come, this Jesus is the prophet, the righteous one that Moses said would come after him. You didn't listen to him. In fact, you murdered him, and you betrayed him. You are resisting him. Can I just ask you a question? When you see those verses in chapter 7, 51 through 54, do you hear an angry Stephen, or do you hear a sorrowful Stephen, the way you and I hear tone of voice is huge. I believe that what they felt that day because he was full of grace, because he had a desire, as we'll see later, to pray for them, that his whole desire was he was pleading with them. He was appealing to them. He was saying, come on, don't you guys see? You always are resisting the Holy Spirit. You did it with Peter and John. You did it with all the apostles recently. You did it with Jesus. Come on, he's, he spoke through Moses. Don't miss it. I believe that's really his tone. And again, as we come to his dying words, I think it backs this up. So as we think about our own lives, what kind of tone of voice do we speak in to other people when they may disagree with us or they may oppose us? Now, this last thing of Stephen's dying words. Notice, if you're following along, he points his accusers to Jesus and Jesus cheers on Stephen. Stephen's dying words, you know, you can tell a lot about a person, some of the last words they say. One of the things about suffering and loss is that it shows what kind of character we really have. Those are character moments. And Stephen is in a huge character moment right now because they not only don't buy what he says, but they start picking up rocks and they push him off a hill and they begin to just pummel him with rocks. But notice this if you're following along. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. You know what gnashing is? Arrgh! There was this like almost animalistic spirit towards him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
At this, they covered their ears and said, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So when you think of this, what did he say? Look, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Why was Jesus standing? We're told that he had ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, which meant that he had finished his work. But now he's standing because in his finished work, he can now welcome Stephen and saying, come on, I'll help you finish the rest of your race here on earth, even though it's tough, even though you're facing suffering and loss. How much does that help to know that Jesus is preparing a place for us, that he is welcoming us, that he has gone before us and he understands suffering and loss? Stephen was so lifted up, they couldn't stand hearing it, but he's holding it up. So notice this. Next thing he does is he asks, if you're following along, Jesus to receive his spirit and forgive his killers. He asked Jesus to receive his spirit and forgive his killers. Would you read with me verses 59 and 60 as I've listed them there on the gray, the third gray box? While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Wow. Wow. These are the last three things he says. I see the son of man standing at the right hand of the son of, you know, of, of, the, of God. And I also, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You know, that's what Jesus said on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then also, what did he say? He also said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He had a forgiving spirit. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, becomes more and more like Jesus. And so I want to just talk to you in the closing minutes about how this passage has come home to me. Yesterday, I... I knelt at the bedside of a man in our church as he died, 42 years old. His name is Travis Schutte, and I think we have some pictures that I want to just show you of Travis. Here's a picture of him several years ago. Uh, he was a chef, and he was recognized. He and his partner owned Secret Recipes in Chatham, and he catered a lot of meals. Maybe you've had some of his food. This is him with his wife, Beth, and his son, Kasten, and his daughter, Kaylin. And um, again, about three years ago, um, they walked into our worship service on a summer Sunday. And uh, after the service, they came down front and introduced themselves to me and told me that Travis, at that time, 39 years old, had just been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And we prayed together and we just bonded in that time. And so over the last three years, we've had chances to interact and get to know each other better. And in these last few weeks, I've spent some time with Travis, making sure that he was ready and that he was equipped to face this last stage of the suffering and loss that he and Beth and his parents and brothers and children have been going through. And so as we talked, I told him that I was going to be speaking on this passage and that Stephen said some amazing dying words. And he said, well, what are they? So I said, well, let me read them to you. And when I said, look, I see the Son of Man, heaven open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. <laughs> he sat up in his bed, and his eyes brightened. And Travis just loved reading those words, the idea that heaven is open to him, 
and that Jesus is ready for him, just boosted him. It helped him face the pain and the awful suffering he's going through in these last hours, right? And then I said, and then he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And and Travis just nodded. That's what I want to say too. And we talked about the fact that also he didn't want anybody not to be welcomed into heaven that he knew. And he's been praying for his friends and he's been pointing to people of Jesus and saying, come back to God. Don't forget God. And he said to me, Jeff, if I hadn't gotten this cancer, I wouldn't have come to Cherry Hills. I wouldn't have met you and I wouldn't have really come to know Jesus like I know him now. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't understand why God allows suffering and loss sometimes. But I'm so glad that he gives us the power to walk through it. And so if you're following along, notice that things don't get better after Stephen is killed. They get worse. Persecution ensues, but God answers Stephen's prayer. Persecution ensues, but God answers Stephen's prayer. And we come to the last three verses that I'm going to read in chapter 8. It says, And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned, here's the word, deeply for him. It was painful for the church. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Are we ready as a church for suffering and loss? Are we ready as a church that if we do begin to experience opposition, that we know how to let God fill us with his grace and power over and over and over again? Stephen learned. You and I can learn. Jesus taught Travis. He can teach us. And so the question is, Why, why did he allow this? Sure. Uh, Why did he allow this? And so I want to read to you a story I've shared before, and some of you have told me you love this story. J. Allen Peterson used to tell this story. A Chinese man had one son and one horse, all he owned. One day his son left the gate open, and his only horse wandered out, never returned. So all the neighbors gathered in and said, that's sad, that's bad, you lost your horse. But the wise little man said, How do you know that's bad? Maybe that's good. How do you know? The next day, that horse wandered back home, followed by 12 wild horses. And they came in, he closed the gate, and he had 13 instead of none. And all the neighbors gathered in and said, that's good, that's good. You've got 13 now. He said, how do you know that's good? Maybe that isn't good. How do you know? Sure enough, the next day, his son was trying to break one of those wild Mustangs, and it threw him, broke his leg. And all the neighbors gathered in and said, that's bad, that's bad. He said, how do you know that's bad? Maybe that's good. How do you know? And the next week, a Chinese warlord came through the country, taking every able-bodied boy off to war, never to return them. But he can't take this boy. He's got a broken leg. So you never know. That's why you trust God. You and I don't know when things happen. Why are these being allowed? We don't understand. They may seem bad. They may seem good. But we don't know exactly how God's always working. We just know he wants to redeem our suffering and loss. We know he wants to do something. He never does anything without a purpose. If he permits it, he will provide. 
And so that's exactly what happened. Let me just tell you that in these verses is our tucked in hope. Twice is mentioned a young man named Saul. In chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. Now, we don't know this guy Saul very well yet. We're just getting to know him. But we know he doesn't like Stephen and he doesn't like Christians. And so it seems like the Christians are in trouble. And they're learning how to have to, to, to look to God in their suffering and loss. But tucked in these is that in chapter 9, if you keep reading Acts, you'll find out that Saul meets Jesus. Stephen's prayer was never forgotten by this young man named Saul. How do we know this? Well, let me just show you two passages because later, Saul, after being converted, chapter 9, later, in the later chapters of Acts, he renames himself Paul. And so he becomes known as the Apostle Paul. And in chapter 22, he now is being charged with false accusations and has to defend himself. Here's what he says in Acts 22, verse 20. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. He says, man, I have never forgotten that day. That day, as awful as it was for the church, embedded itself in me. I could not outrun it. I could not escape it. I couldn't get it out of my head. And then in his testimony later in Acts 26, look at what he says. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me, what you have seen and will see of me. Now this line, it is hard for you to kick against the goats, is fascinating. I don't know if you know what a goat is. We don't use them as much here in our country, but in other countries where they use oxen and cows, they still use them. They are a stick with a very pointed end. And so cows and oxen can sometimes be stubborn. They can be stiff-necked. And so what happens is, is they use this goad to kind of goad them forward. They stick them, good. And so if they decide to kick back, then it gets bloody. It gets more painful. And what Jesus is saying is, your conscience is being goaded by Stephen's testimony and prayer for you and by all the other believers you see that are suffering differently and you don't understand it. And so why are you persecuting me and continuing to kick? It's hard for you, Saul. Don't keep going. Don't keep resisting the Holy Spirit. And that day, he realized that Jesus was talking on his own terms. So let me just tell you an interesting thing. Yesterday, I was praying in a small group of people, as we do every Saturday, with some of my friends. And a couple of the guys said something interesting. One guy uh, said, I grew up on a farm, and he said, have you ever seen what happens uh, when a cow kicks? He said, they don't kick, you know, just gently. They kick hard. And he says, when they kick against a goad like that, <laughs> it hurts even more. And I was thinking about that, that sometimes we kick softly, sometimes we kick hard. But then, after we were done, we were getting ready to pray. A man in our church who's been an elder, he bowed and said this, Lord Jesus, give Stephen a hug for us today. I picture Stephen and Saul who became Paul 
sitting next to each other in heaven because Stephen's prayer opened Saul's heart in the most unlikely time. Praise the Lord. And so here's some closing questions for you. This one's for me. Lord, is there a place I'm resisting your Holy Spirit? Is there a place that I'm kicking against the goats? Is there a place that I need to stop fighting you? Maybe you've been trying to lead me to the Lord. Maybe you've been trying to prepare me. And instead of pushing against this suffering and loss, having a different heart, letting your grace and power fill me. And then, of course, the other prayer is, Lord, please fill me with grace so I can move forward, onward with you. How do we face something like this? Most of us say, man, if I ever had to go through what Stephen's going through, I don't think I could do it. The point is, is you couldn't do it. I couldn't do it either. But if the Lord brings us to that place, here's our confidence, that if we will let him, he will fill us with a grace and a power greater than our own. I watched him be faithful to Travis all the way to his dying breath. And I watched him help many other people through some of the hardest things I could imagine. And he wants to help you this day. So as we close, we want to close with a closing song, just a prayer. But I want to just say to you as one of the pastors, this whole thing with the coronavirus, we didn't see it coming, most of us becoming this serious. And it's caused us to have to readjust a lot of schedules and it may make us afraid of whether or not we're going to have enough resources. The Lord will provide. What do you need the Lord to fill your heart with today? Ask him. Open yourself up to him and be amazed at what God can do when ordinary people are humble and leadable like that. I believe these are going to be some of the most creative days in our church as we adjust and adapt and walk through this time of some of the losses of our freedom and care for people beyond our walls. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook. Facebook.